Welcome to the Seagrass Spotlight. In this podcast episode, we dive deep into the world of seagrass. Seagrass might not be the sexiest topic out there, but trust us, it's definitely worth talking about. I'm Pierre. And I'm Liz. And welcome to the Wild Islands Podcast. underwater plant may not have the glamour of a coral reef or the majesty of a humpback whale but it plays a crucial role in our marine ecosystems. It absolutely does. Did you know that seagrass meadows provide vital habitat for all kinds of sea creatures from tiny shrimp to giant manatees although we don't get manatees do we Liz? We don't get manatees here. <laughs> Sadly. We don't. But we do get dolphins. <laughs> we do get dolphins and they do like seagrass they... as, as we have seen. Yes, they do indeed. And in fact, seagrass can even help to combat climate change by absorbing, absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Yeah, these plants are truly the unsung heroes of the ocean. Indeed they are. So join us as we take a closer look at seagrass and explore why it's so important to protect and preserve these unassuming underwater wonders. And who knows, we might even crack a few seagrass-related jokes along the way. What do you call a seagrass that's had too much coffee? Hyperaqualated. Don't worry, I won't quit my day job just yet. (laughs) Let's get started. Okay then, let's kick this off. So, Liz, tell us, as you're the marine expert, why seagrass is important to our oceans. So seagrasses, there's lots of different species, they're not just plants, they also form habitats, so we call them habitat-forming plants. And because they provide habitats in the form of seagrass meadows, they provide food, shelter and essential nursery habitats to both commercial fish species like bass, flatfishes, sole, um, but also to recreational fish, fish species too. So those are those cute little pink things. I don't know what they're called, but you also have... A, <laughs> Shrimp. Can you tell that I'm not a fish expert? Um, but also things like scallops. You might find um, sea hares and sea slugs. And we mentioned dolphins and manatees before. So manatees eat seagrass, but dolphins hunt in seagrass. Like underwater cows. Yeah, I mean, some some people do call, in fact, call... Um, manatees, sea cows. So oh, uh, yeah, love And also, like you know, they they they're home to countless invertebrate species as well. So how does seagrass differ from other marine plants then, such as kelp and algae? So seagrasses are actually land plants that have recolonised the ocean. In fact, land plants in general can be thought of as seaweeds that millennia, perhaps even billions of years ago, left the sea and colonised the land. And then seagrasses went back into the sea, but they're still land plants. So like other land plants, they have a root structure, whereas seaweeds, like kelp, don't have a root structure. Um, And uh, seagrasses have pollen, they produce flowers and seeds and that root structure that rhizome structure is very important because it locks and holds the sediment in place and it means that seagrasses can help reduce coastal erosion as well 
And we used to use it to stuff bed sheets over here. We did, um, the, which one indicates how much seagrass we had in Guernsey, but two, it's actually a very smart thing to do because mm. it is a marine plant. It's salt land bugs probably wouldn't have done very well in the, mm. in, the, in the salt residue left. So in fact, you'd have a nice fresh mattress that didn't get lice and other little mini little beasts creatures. that might, might bite you in the night. Ooh. I suppose we should also say, if you want to find out more about seagrass, we've got a nice section of it in our film. We do. There's a brilliant um, segment in the Wild Islands, the Blue documentary. So you can learn a lot about our local seagrasses in the film. So we're really lucky because we have two different species of seagrass in the Channel Islands. Um, and they're both eelgrasses. Um, so we have Zestera marina, which is common eelgrass, and Zestera multi, which is dwarf eelgrass. And I, I think the thing with, you know, the documentary is it's all very nice us telling you statistics and facts and figures and whatever about seagrass. But actually, it does just look beautiful and really strange especially underwater and like Matthew Stockwriter who's been filming with us he has got the most beautiful footage of um, sunlight shining through the water through the blades of seagrass and you know little fish and all manner of weird little sea life things just going about their day-to-day business. Yeah Matt's film filming is just phenomenal and the Mm. thing that that just keeps surprising me is from the top some of the beds are so dense it just looks like this green tropical forest yeah and it's not until you get up well, like close a... and personal that you see things yeah or just like a green mat i mean we we got some nice drone footage of it too didn't we and well i've seen lots of drone pictures of seagrass around guernsey some of the pictures look amazing but sort of up close it does just look like a a green blanket but once you're inside it in it in you know there's like pockets of sand and stuff within within the beds where you just sort of wait and then all this sea life just comes out and it does just show yeah what an amazing habitat it actually is and and I I love the when you get to those little sandy patches and you see all the fish hiding under the seagrass blades that lie on top of the water like they're hiding mm. under the canopy of a rainforest not just in the day, but at night too. And you see different things at night compared to the day. And sometimes it's only when you're looking through the footage later that you spot something that you couldn't, you didn't actually see when you were right there, centimetres away from it. That is possibly some of the best stuff though, the night shoot, which um, Anthony uh, filmed most of the stuff for that. And yeah, you've just got crabs and stuff that I just don't think you would see in the day. And they they sort of camouflage themselves with blades of seagrass and like kelp and stuff. I think to uh, was it to prevent the cuttlefish from eating them? Um, but they come out at night and they sort of dance around. Yeah, so we've got, we've got so there's loads of different spider crab species. Um, there's some really tiny ones, um, which I think was what you're talking about. There, so it's the Macropedia Macropedia species, and mm. they look like itty bitty spider crabs, and they cover themselves in red algae and they're just weird and beautiful yeah. and if you're really lucky you might see one swimming and when they're swimming they look like they're riding an invisible bicycle but you you don't see them i've never seen them anywhere except in a seagrass bed in guernsey we've also got seahorses in them don't we we do and, uh, but you have octopus. to be 
really lucky to see a seahorse. Yeah, octopus, cuttlefish, mm. yeah. so many species of crab. Lots of different species lay their eggs on the seagrass blades. When we were filming in April last year, I've got uh, pictures where it looks like tiny neon green donuts on the leaves that mm. are the eggs of a whelk, I think. I'd have to double check the species. Are, yeah. And nudibranch, so sea slugs. So many different things. Not to mention, we're not just talking about things that are living on the seagrass or swimming through it. There's also lots of species that live on the the ground, so we call it the substrate of the seagrass, and in the yeah. root structure. So uh, people dig for ragworms, um, and you can also find scallops and clams. So I think you talked a bit about Project Seagrass. They'll be celebrating, like, uh, well, I guess their 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 efforts in like restoring seagrass and stuff. Um, but we should probably talk a bit about Beep, which is our local bailiwick eelgrass exploration project. Very nice name, isn't it? It is. It's a brilliant name. Um, yeah, so much better than the bailiwick seal, seagrass exploration project. Um, the reason it's called eelgrass is because both of our seagrass species are eelgrass. And all eelgrass is seagrass, but not all seagrass is eelgrass. So we should be celebrating what's local. Beep regularly organises walkovers and um, citizen science days to research and study the seagrass in the Channel Islands. Was it in January? We had World Wetlands Day and they went to home with a bunch of other organisations and they did a walkover. And you can tell us a bit more about that, Liz, because you were there. I was. Um, So World Wetlands Day is the 2nd of February each year. We have protected wetlands, so there are Ramsar sites. Um, And as we have seagrass or eelgrass in our Ramsar sites, celebrating World Wetlands Day by going and doing a seagrass or eelgrass walkover is the perfect way to spend your day. We had a public event with several other organisations all doing different things in the Ramsar site. And we went out to Herm. And the reason we went to Herm is I said that we have two species of eelgrass in the bailiwick and the dwarf eelgrass has very specific habitat type. Um, so it's much higher up beach and it's sort of a very muddy area, but it needs to be very sheltered. And it, it's tiny in comparison to the common eelgrass. So it's a great way to educate people about what you might otherwise just ignore on the beach. So we went out and we mapped the bed and we went down to the uh, the larger common eelgrass bed as well, but the tide wasn't actually low enough. And I should at this point say that most places in the world, you have to survey your seagrass by snorkeling or diving because it's too deep. Whereas in the Channel Islands, we have these massive tidal ranges. So on a low spring tide, you can literally walk down to the bed which is is amazing just incredible yeah and that's one of the reasons we can do a walkover isn't it because of our tidal range um and actually walking well i say walking over we we tend not to actually walk on the seagrass but you walk to the bed you can look around it you can measure it and map it in a way that you perhaps couldn't do in areas of the uk where the tidal range isn't you know isn't quite as large as ours um so yeah liz do you want to tell us what beep is doing with this research So the very first thing 
is that we can't manage something if we don't know information about it. So we're collecting what's called baseline data. We are mapping all of the different seagrass beds and patches in the bailiwick. And once we know where they are, we can also monitor it. Um, so we have what are called monitoring quadrats. And that's like a, a little square where we've taken the GPS and we use fieldwork quadrats that are broken down into further little squares and we will count the number of seagrass shoots in each of these quadrats. Um, we'll record how dense it is, so how much of that square is covered by the seagrass. And we also record what the substrate is, so what the ground is, you know, sand, mud, shells, silt, whatever. Um, and finally, we'll look at any of the species that are, are associated with it. So that might be a seaweed that's growing on the seagrass. It could be whelks and other um, marine life that's climbing over and around it. It might be a fish. So just because we've got we've got all the we're measuring all these things, you might get an idea that perhaps what we see in a quadrat depends on whether it's completely exposed to the air, so the sea's down, or if we've dropped it in water, because you're probably not going to see any fish when that square is completely exposed. One of the reasons for having these monitoring quadrats is because seagrass is a, you know, it's a plant, it's a land plant that's recolonized the ocean. So just like the grass in your garden looks different at different times of year, so does seagrass. Mm. So we want to monitor it through the year to see what's happening over the summer growing season. And the idea is long-term we will have, it's called, a time series will continue monitoring over the years and see how things change yeah it's exciting work it all sounds amazing but it's not actually enough is it no this is very much the starting point um and yeah we need to have this information because people are increasingly talking about seagrass in terms of blue carbon and its potential to lock carbon down into the uh, sediments that are trapped beneath the root structure but it's not a magic bullet but but we need to have the data to back up what we're saying um and data has to underpin every decision that we make and it's got to come from somewhere yeah so and by as, even having some base small baseline data is it's a starting point it is exactly it's a starting point to build from but i just like to say that blue carbon research is very much in its early days we don't know enough about our seagrass to say anything about whether it would be a good blue carbon store we don't even know how the different beds are storing carbon in comparison to each other so you know this and you is know very even, much the early stages and even you know people say it but even just thinking like ethically or like even about like land allocation like how could you realistically monitor and say this seagrass has been planted and is capturing carbon if someone then just walks down the beach and walks all over it you know it's kind the, of the, the same with planting forests some of the I've, i mean I've, i'm sure you've heard things but i've heard things about some of these forests that have been planted as carbon stores being either cut down or i think one of the i mean it's not funny but it's kind of funny not funny um, in the Greece fires a few years ago, the the sort of fires they had in the summer, wildfires, um, a, a carbon capture forest burnt down. And, you know, like that, that just symbolises what a sort of fast the whole operation it is. 
So, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying fast, but you have raised a really important point. We definitely can't say anything about our, our beds capturing carbon when there isn't any legal protection. I could go yeah. down to the bed today and dig up scallops and ragworm for bait and it would be perfectly legal. Yeah. And I'm not going, I don't think anyone that does dig for bait should be penalised because they're doing something completely legal. So if, yeah. if the community wants to investigate seagrass as a carbon store, one, we don't have the data to say it's good, but two, there's zero point in saying, yes, it's a carbon capture habitat if we don't, don't protect it. Yeah, and, absolutely. And three, even if we say, okay, we're going to protect it, there's no point in putting a protection in place if you can't enforce that. And part of that piece has to be education about it. So, yeah, a brilliant point. Start with the education. I mean, I, yeah, maybe I think farce, so. farcical was maybe the wrong term, but you get what I mean. Um, I do. It, it's like a, a company polluting, like mass, you know, releasing massive amounts of carbon emissions and then planting a forest that they can't even guarantee the life cycle of. And I think some of that, as many people in um, carbon capture say, that, you know, those sort of things will be ironed out. And um, whilst it might be a grey area now, there'll be stricter regulation on it to ensure you're not being conned. Um, yeah. And that's that's another brilliant point. Uh, increasingly, and I would say the corporate world is very on the ball about this, they don't want greenwashing. If they yeah. are going to look at something to work towards net zero, which we should all be working towards, then they you have to provide the evidence that what you're doing is not greenwashing. Um, and I, I'm really impressed with the way um, some corporates are being extremely strict about this. We can't have any greenwashing. Well, it, yeah. I mean, what's the point investing your time and money if it if actually you're not doing anything, it's just PR? Because it's not, yeah. you know, it's not going to be cheap. I mean, I suppose that's that's the thing planting forests to some extent is. They just say, add a pound, we'll plant a tree. But if there's no actual monitoring and, you know, yeah. you could actually be planting a monoculture tree, that's not even good for the local wildlife. And, and it, it's not it's not the planting of the tree. It's the, it's the tree being alive and storing capture, um, capturing carbon and storing it over its lifespan. Plus... The whole focus on trees is great in one way, but in another, it ignores yeah. the fact that actually a lot of grasslands store a huge amount of carbon. If we want yeah, to peat bogs, yeah, I was literally about to say peat bogs. We should, you know, peat. It, having peat compost is one of the worst things you can do. With trees, though, it's kind of simple to think about in your head from all sorts of angles you know from a consumer you're like oh yeah planting a tree is good from a company you're like well this is easy we'll just grow a hundred trees you know it, it's kind of easy but then it's also easy to also think whilst companies are planting very small you know undeveloped trees at the same time there are companies cutting down whole you know woodlands and it is kind of the same thing with the seagrass you know we could end up planting one area and then in Guernsey decide oh maybe we should just build on this area of coastal habitat so yeah you need, I don't think you we... need a holistic view of everything and we've yeah. gone completely off seagrass here no no I don't think we have I mean I don't we don't have any protection for seagrass here I don't think we have any marine protection here we don't have marine protected areas like some of the other Channel Islands 
in terms of habitat restoration, that's certainly not a stage we're at. We need to know what's there, compare mm. it to what used to be there. And also, we certainly don't have the facilities to run a nursery to yeah. start. I, I mean, the Solent is a great example because they know there used to be seagrass there. And then there was an industrial um, was industrial development and it killed all the seagrass. And yeah. now so they know there was seagrass and now they're doing a restoration uh, project. We don't want to be planting seagrass on a different habitat and destroying a different habitat, but we also don't have a nursery or marine lab space to do any of the um, initial propagation. Like you say, though, how how on earth can you restore it if you don't even protect it? Because, you know, you be, you could be planting it somewhere and someone else digging it up somewhere else perfectly legally. There, there is... Like there is a lot of talk about, you know, different restoration projects that could or should be done in, in Guernsey or the Bailiwick as a whole. But if you don't protect it, what's the point? No. And, <laughs> and so, you know, in some of the, the places that people want to do land reclamation, like Belgrave Bay, has got seagrass at both ends, kelp, which is yeah. another blue carbon habitat, and merle. You know, three major habitat forming species that also capture carbon. And we're like, no, we'll, we'll, we're going to fill in and develop Belgrave Bay. So the three plants, the three wise men were carrying. I would be it would be incredible if that, you know, that's that was true. But I think it was <laughs> frankincense and myrrh. <laughs> no, I think it was seagrass, kelp and myrrh. <laughs> <laughs> it does kind of roll off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I think that's quite enough talking about seagrass, don't you? Is it? I mean, <laughs> I suppose so. We could talk about seagrass for literally hours. Yeah, it's probably enough for today. A little taster. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you join us next time for some more weird, wonderful and wildlife related stuff? Indeed. Indeed.